everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today in Everyday Injustice, we will be discussing bail. Uh, back in March, the California Supreme Court changed the way bail is assessed in the Humphrey decision, ruling that judges must consider a person's ability to pay when setting bail. Here to discuss a recent study for how that's being applied in San Francisco and the impact of Humphrey on pretrial release is uh, Johanna Lacoe from the California Policy Lab. Welcome to our show. Thank you, glad to be here. Um, so I, I guess briefly, uh, for those who don't know, uh, tell us a little bit about what the Humphrey decision uh, did and, uh, and also, uh, tell us a little bit about the California Policy Lab. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I think I'll start with the first, the, the second question. California Policy Lab is a research center uh, that's uh, part of UC Berkeley and UCLA. We have offices in both, both places. And our goal is to partner uh, with state and local agencies throughout California to help them kind of unlock the potential of their administrative data help them understand the data that they have and use it to answer questions that help them improve the work that they're doing. Um, we, we partner with faculty across the UC system um, and connect those faculty with the state and local agencies uh, to do this work. So that's the California Policy Lab and what we do. Um, and this project came out of our partnership with several um, criminal justice agencies in San Francisco. We've had a long time partnership with them um, have done a lot of studies together. Uh, and in this case, we were interested in understanding uh, how Humphrey, the, the court decision, might affect how people are released. And uh, we were able to look at this because the, the Humphrey case began in San Francisco in May of 2017 uh, when Kenneth Humphrey was detained, uh, when he was unable to pay a very high bail. Uh, originally set at $700,000 um, after he was arrested for stealing a $5 you know, bottle of cologne. And his attorney appealed that, that decision and argued that it was unconstitutional for a court to set a bail amount without considering the person's ability to even you know, remotely pay uh, that bail amount and be released. And so in January of 2018, uh, the first district court of appeal ruled in favor of Mr. Humphrey, holding that you know, judges must consider the ability to pay and non-monetary release options when setting the conditions of release. And that's the point when the San Francisco Superior Court, uh, you know, where this case came from initially, started immediately to adhere to that ruling. 
So we were interested in looking at San Francisco starting in you know, January 2018 to understand what changed as a result. Did anything change um, in the way the court was operating and how people were being released pretrial? Uh, and it becomes even more important now because the Supreme Court of California had agreed to hear the case at the request of uh, several different parties, including the San Francisco district attorney at the time, uh, George Gascon, and the appeals court granted review. And then ultimately in March of 2021, just recently, the Supreme Court of California upheld the lower court's ruling. So now this applies to everyone, right? This isn't just a San Francisco um, issue. And so understanding what happened in San Francisco is important to inform other counties and how they might respond as well. So what has your report found so far? Sure. Um, so we took a descriptive look at what happened in San Francisco uh, before and after January 2018. So it's important to note that. Um, and what we found were a couple things. We really find that the way people are being released changed. Um, following the Humphrey decision. So we focus on uh, cases that were booked into jail and had a file charged so that the district attorney actually moved forward with the case. Looking at those set of cases, the overall likelihood of detention for filed cases declined uh, over the period, but just a little bit from 25% to, to 22%. So 22% of cases um, were detained uh, for the full pretrial period following Humphrey. Um, when we look at the filed cases, the, the share that were released on cash bail actually declined, contrary to what we might have thought. If, if bail was being set at an affordable level, you'd think that more people would be released on bail. But that's not what we find. We find that actually fewer people are being, as a share uh, of filed cases, are being released on bail. And then um, where the increase, you know, kind of, so two things are decreasing. So what's increasing, one might ask. Um, the share of filed cases that are released to intensive supervision. This is akin to being on probation prior to a determination of guilt. Um, it's, you know, you have a caseworker, there are conditions you have to comply with, uh, but there are no fi financial conditions uh, such that bail comes with. But the share of filed cases that are released to intensive supervision doubled. So uh, a lot more people were under intensive supervision during the pretrial period. And then I think another important point to make is that even though we see this small reduction in the share that's detained for the full pretrial period, the, the jail population overall remained stable. So we didn't see, we don't see that this Humphrey decision is decreasing our jail population in a big way in San Francisco. We, we really don't see a change. It's pretty stable over that period. Um, so one of the things that uh, we've noticed, um, so uh, one of the things that the Vanguard does is we have court watches and we send interns to cover courtrooms um, really across the state. And so uh, particularly for whatever reason in Sacramento, we've covered another, a, a number of uh, Humphrey uh, hearings and motions. And what we've noticed is that when in doubt, uh, judges are holding people without bail as opposed to kind of what uh, the Humphrey decision says, which is, you know, um, there's supposed to be, uh, I forget the exact language, but basically a strong uh, inclination toward release unless there's a compelling reason. It seems like they've reversed that. Are, are you seeing that in San Francisco? 
Um, not necessarily. Uh, in the sample of cases that we're looking at where charges are filed, we we actually find this decrease in the share that's detained for the full pretrial period. So, and we also find a small decrease in the average length of stay. So, you know, the people are actually staying less time overall. Um, so it, it doesn't seem that that's what's happening. I think uh, it's one of the things that we're really interested in observing as Humphrey is adhered to in, in other counties, because there's a lot of room within the decision for different actors to, uh, to change their behavior, and we don't know how they're going to do it. So um, there's room for the prosecutors to make the claim that this person should be preventatively detained, right? That there isn't a least restrictive option that makes sense um, for, you know, for the court to select. We haven't seen that happening yet in San Francisco, not in large numbers, but it, it could happen in other places. So that could potentially be what you're seeing. But in San Francisco, it looks like we're, you know, this large increase in intensive supervision that judges seem to be erring on the side of supervised release, saying if we can't set a bail that will kind of de facto detain someone, then instead of just releasing them with no conditions, we'll release them with oversight. Um, and potentially that will, you know, kind of meet the needs. Um, and it is part of that because in San Francisco, you have a DA's office that has already said that they're not gonna ask for bail in most cases um, versus maybe in Sacramento, they're not. Um, so that just may be uh, a function of different policies. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco is unique in a lot of ways. Um, the period of time that we're looking at is before the uh, zero bail went into effect in San Francisco. So bail is still an option, um, but, it, but you're right. I mean, it, it can vary by, you know, the orientation of the district attorney's office or, or even the judges and kind of what they're inclined to do um, and, and what argument is being made from the uh, defense side as well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how other counties respond. And then um, you've already mentioned that, you know, the report found that contrary to expectations, uh, lowering bail amounts didn't increase the number of people uh, released on bail. Um, so do you have an idea for what accounts for that? Yeah, I think it, it, it may be, and this is just, you know, my guess, but that judges, uh, in given the, the options of, of basically releasing someone, right, on bail that's affordable or just releasing them straight out, uh, they're choosing to release people to a supervision program, either electronic monitoring or these intensive supervised release programs or a combination. We're seeing some people being released onto both uh, of those. Um, and it's, you know, it's important to understand that this is a change from practice before. And San Francisco's had supervised release programs since the 1970s. We, they have a robust kind of set of, of release options, which is another way in which San Francisco is different from some other counties. But we don't yet really understand whether being released on supervised release is preferable to being released on bail for an individual's outcomes. Um, I haven't seen that study. I would love to see that study. That's something that needs to be done. Um, but we don't have good understanding yet of kind of what the impact is on individuals uh, if they are put onto a supervision program versus released on bail. Interesting. Um, and then 
another interesting finding uh, was that you found that the overall jail population remains steady. Um, any idea on what accounts for that? Yeah, I think uh, you know there are a couple of factors that contribute to a jail population measure. Um, the first is bookings uh, and the kind of number of bookings coming in, how many people are flowing into the jail. Our analysis sample uh, focuses on those people with a filed charge who are detained or released on supervision or on bail. Uh, that comprises only one quarter of the overall population that's booked into jail. So it's just not the full population uh, of people that are booked into jail. Bookings that do not result in a charge filed or a transfer to other jurisdictions, they're not included in our analysis sample because we're interested in what happens during that pretrial period. And we can't observe that if you get transferred somewhere else or if you never have a charge filed. Um, uh, the second factor that contributes to jail populations are, are releases, how many people are being released at a given time. And then the third is the length of stay, right? What's the average length of stay? Um, and, and when we look at kind of the overall jail population inflows and outflows, they're pretty stable across the whole period. It's when we focus in on that population that kind of can be affected by Humphrey where we see the differences. So my, my takeaway is just complying with Humphrey isn't gonna solve your jail overpopulation problem. <laughs> there are gonna need to be other reforms uh, to address that. Well, that makes sense. Um, and then, you know, kind of another factor here, um, which, you know, I find really interesting is that uh, basically it seems like they, the judges have shifted from uh, a bail to uh, intensive supervision. Mm -hmm. um, and is that kind of a middle ground or what are we seeing with that? Yeah, I think it could feel like a middle ground because, um, you're kind of ensuring that there's some system set up, you know, to support people during the pretrial period. I mean, the court really has two main goals uh, during pretrial the pretrial period. They want to encourage people to appear for, for court, and they want to discourage people from committing a new offense, right? And they want to, you know, ensure public safety during that period of time. Those are actually kind of different goals. Um, you know, the kind of support that someone needs to appear for court might be pretty different than the support someone needs to, you know, desist from criminal activity. Um, but these supervision programs are trying to do both, right? They do reminders. They try to help people remember how to get to court or when to get to court and, and help them do it. Um, but they also can have conditions like you know, drug tests or other, you know, kind of requirements that they think might help people um, avoid contact with the justice system uh, again and, and new arrests. So I think they could appear to judges, you know, as being a, a middle ground, not just letting someone go off on their own and hoping that they show up for court again, but giving them kind of more of a structure. Electronic monitoring is slightly different, right? And that's not your inner not that you're interacting with a person, but you have this monitor that's supposed to incentivize you to, you know, to do what you need to do. Um, but there again, we need more research about kind of what the impact of electronic monitoring is on people, you know, who it helps and who it doesn't. Those are still questions that we don't fully understand. There are, there are a lot of really interesting things in what you just said. Um, so, you know, one of the um, things I was just reading about was that 
you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that one of the main purposes of bail is to ensure that people actually go and uh, make their appearances. And then the second part is the public safety part. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, of course, you know, one of the bail reform arguments is that, well, just having enough money to be able to pay for your bail doesn't ensure public safety. Um, you know, it could be that you have parents that are wealthy and can pay your way out, or just because you can pay your way out doesn't necessarily make you less dangerous, um, depending on, on uh, what you're accused of. Um, but the uh, appearance part is, is really interesting. I was just reading about, um, I think it was a, a article or a study, I can't remember which, but um, basically simply reminding people of their court appearances actually uh, greatly improves uh, their attendance uh, when, when they're out on release. And so they may not even need uh, that kind of supervision. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. There are a lot of very low touch things that we can do to help improve people's outcomes, particularly in, in terms of appearance um, that don't require kind of onerous conditions and kind of a full uh, supervision program. But, you know, those programs work if you have a cell phone and you have a way, you know, a consistent way that someone can get in touch with you um, and that you're able to get to court and to, you know, you have a flexible enough job situation where you can get to court when you need to and be able to wait um, and, you know, childcare coverage or, or whatever it is that you need. Uh, to make court appearances happen. So I think a lot of people in this space are interested in how can we make appearing for court a more reasonable thing for people who are juggling uh, uh, things that we want them to be juggling, like family uh, responsibilities and jobs and school and all of that. Um, so that's an ongoing conversation. And I hope, uh, I hope it gets pushed forward. I'm curious to see what we learn from the COVID time in terms of um, virtual appearance and you know, kind of expanding the options for people to appear at court. Um, I'm curious to see if those improve appearance rates um, and if there's anything else we can do kind of creatively there to help people appear to court when they want to, <laughs> um, when they actually do want to. Well, you know, and, and it's interesting that you point that out. One of the things that we've noticed is, first of all, there seem to be a lot more 977 appearances than uh, before. And also there are a lot of no-shows uh, over mm. Zoom, uh, which uh, is interesting. You would think it'd be easier for people to appear. Uh, and, and then of course, you know, the ongoing struggle of technology and uh, people that simply don't have enough uh, bandwidth uh, to be able to operate a Zoom link. Uh, sure. so, so, so there's some really interesting issues. There's also, um, you know, as you look at levels of enhanced supervision, uh, you know, I was reading some research on things like uh, uh, ankle monitoring, which can be just as onerous as, uh, as actual incarceration um, because you're basically tethered uh, to locations and your ability to, uh, you know, uh, charge uh, the darn ankle monitor. Uh, I, I think you have to charge it like 12, uh, every eight hours or something like that. And, and that can be a, a huge burden. So, you know, we think of these uh, as kind of uh, lesser uh, than incarceration and in some ways they are, but in some ways they're worse than 
incarceration. Yeah, I think one of the questions we have to ask is, are we setting people up to fail <laughs> uh, just by the conditions that we're putting them on um, and just kind of as a, as a function of the supervi supervision that we're assigning them to? And one, anecdotally, what we've heard in San Francisco, um, and we're hoping to do more work in this area, is that uh, the population of individuals who are unhoused, who are frequently in contact with the justice system and are being released because they're arrested for really minor things, uh, really struggle to keep their, their uh, monitors charged. Um, and that makes sense. And it doesn't seem like the goal of the program, right? So trying to think through kind of the unintended consequences of some of these options is really important. So one of my questions then kind of on the broader sense is uh, what, what do you see as the broader implications of this particular study? Yeah, I, I think it has the potential to really change how bail is used throughout the state of California, although I, I do think it's gonna vary by county. So that will be really interesting to see. You know, uh, There was an attempt to have bail reform that didn't go through last November um, so this is just another way that the kind of landscape of bail is changing in California. But there are a bunch of unanswered questions that remain that counties are going to have to work through to figure out how to comply with this decision. And I think there are implications beyond California. I mean, it, you know, this ruling is pretty clear uh, in that setting a bail that's unaffordable isn't okay. Um, so that's going to potentially could apply in other states as well. But uh, for me, when I think through, uh, you know, I, I'm constantly using the data, court data, to try to understand the really complicated process that starts with someone being arrested and ends with their sentence being completed. So many different data sets come into, into play, so many different interactions uh, with the court and, you know, with other uh, players. I don't understand how the courts are going to assess ability to pay in, in a systematic way where that information is coming from. From what we understand now, it's really being raised by the, the defense saying this person can't afford that, but there's no information collected about people's finances when they're interacting with, with the justice system. So that's a really big answer question for me that I think needs to be figured out. What alternatives will replace bail release um, and how much those alternatives will cost, will cost a county is a big one. You know, San Francisco had the infrastructure already to have these you know, uh, supervised release programs and greatly increased funding to supervised release and to electronic monitoring over this period. But smaller counties may not have the capacity to do that or may not have a nonprofit ready to go to provide that sort of oversight. So I think that's a big piece um, that could potentially change um, throughout the state. And then, you know, like I said before, we don't really understand how intensive pretrial supervision affects individual outcomes. It may be really good for some people and really harmful for other people. And we just haven't done that work yet to understand how outcomes may vary. And, and we need to do that if, if what one of the effects of Humphrey will be is that more people are on supervised release. We're gonna have to understand what that means. Yeah, one thing I, I don't think we talked about is, you know, one of the big problems with bail is that you put somebody into custody pre-trial who haven't been convicted of a crime, um, you know, you're taking them out of their life. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, if they're working, uh, they can't work, obviously. 
if uh, you know they have how, uh, bills and rent, uh, they're not paying that. Uh, if they have a family, they're they're separated from their family. Um, so that creates huge amounts of economic stress. It creates huge amounts of stress on people's relationships. Um, and if you're really uh, you know looking for ways to uh, prevent people from going back into the system. Pre-trial detention is kind of the opposite of what you want to do. Um, on the other hand, that has to be balanced against kind of uh, the two uh, other planks, right? Uh, the uh, ability to uh, show up and go to court uh, on a regular appearance, and then you know your public safety issue. And you know there are there are people that are relatively not a threat, and then there are a, a small percentage who really are a threat to public safety. Um, and, you know, I, I've always wondered, well, how did they come up with the idea that, oh, if I can pay, you know, $100,000, I'm not a threat to public safety all of a sudden. Yeah. What? That makes no sense to me. <laughs> um, um, so, uh, so, so there's that. Um, you also mentioned that, you know, they haven't determined how, uh, you know, to assess people's ability to pay, but that has been a problem for a long time. Uh, they assess all sorts of fines, uh, and uh, and the payment schedule is often based on ability to pay. Um, and then they, uh, you know, they determine whether or not uh, to waive uh, costs for public defense, uh, and that's determined by ability to pay. And it, it's always kind of struck me that there's not really a formal process for determining that. Um, you know that. Uh, the way it's worked, as far as I can tell, is, you know, the public defender will make, uh, you know, um, a, a showing, um, you know, basically a statement and the judge will either accept it or not. Uh, mm -hmm. So may come down to, uh, to that as well for bail. Um, I, I don't know how much you guys yeah. looked into that. No, it, it might. It might. And we don't we don't observe that information in the data that we see. So it makes us harder to, it, it makes it harder for us to evaluate, you know, um, who really wasn't able to pay bail and therefore kind of was subject to a change uh, as a result uh, of this policy. Um, I just want to reiterate kind of one of the other uh, kind of harmful effects of pretrial detention, particularly for people who are being detained and not because they pose a public safety risk uh, but because of their inability to pay, is that you're more likely to take a plea deal for all of the reasons that you stated when you're detained because you want to get out. <laughs> so you're going, and a plea deal comes with an admission of guilt. So you're more likely to be convicted and then you have a conviction on your record and that has downstream effects for your life as well. And that can all be the result of you just needing to solve your short-term problem, which was getting out so you can take care of your family and, and keep your job. Um, and those kind of incentives are not what we want you know, that's not how we want the justice system to work. <laughs> that doesn't feel like justice. So I think understanding kind of the, even though pretrial detention can be only a number of days, it can be very meaningful for people uh, and, and very harmful. So it's, it's worth focusing on. It could also be six months or a year or we, you mm -hmm. know, or two years sometimes. So sure. I, I mean, um, it could be short term, but the justice system works very slowly, especially right now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a consideration. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people go, well, okay, if we get rid of bail, what do we replace it with? 
Um, and and so, you know, have you guys been able to start looking into, uh, you know, alternatives? What what San Francisco is using as alternatives? Yeah, I mean, just releasing people is a good option for most people. Um, you know, as you said, there's evidence that people respond well to simple court, you know, reminders about court appearances and other low-touch interventions that don't impinge on their freedom at all. So just releasing people um, who don't pose a threat to public safety is, is a good option and dealing with, you know, the court appearance piece uh, separately. And then, um, you know, just to state, hopefully it's obvious, but people who really pose a threat to public safety are, are detained. <laughs> and when we're talking about releasing people, we're not talking about releasing people who are accused of very, very serious, you know, offenses. If there's a, a threat to public safety, then those people are detained. We're talking about um, people who have been uh, arrested for offenses that they have not been convicted of yet uh, that are less serious, right? And so I think release, it should be the first option. Uh, and then release with supervision uh, is what we're going to see uh, for people who are deemed higher risk of pretrial failure. failure. And then uh, kind of the last question, uh, you know, aside from wanting to look at areas other than San Francisco, what do we still need to learn? Oh, there's so much to still learn <laughs> about all of this. Um, I, I really want to do this, uh, a strong study to understand the impact of supervised release and of electronic monitoring. And those are things we're exploring with our partners in San Francisco, but it would be great to work outside of San Francisco as well. Um, I think we really need to understand the types of supports people need to succeed during the pretrial period and the types of supports they do not need. Um, and so we can kind of right size those interventions. Um, I think uh, really understanding from a qualitative perspective, the challenges to complying during the pretrial period with conditions um, is important. And uh, I think some of that work is being done now. And then I think um, it's really important to understand how outcomes vary by different populations, particularly the populations that really we're really concerned with, like uh, homeless populations who are um, you know, high utilizers of the criminal justice system and of other systems to try to understand how this system, pretrial appearance, uh, you know, and kind of compliance during the pretrial period is functioning for them and whether we need to rethink that completely. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, bail's a really interesting issue for me. I remember uh, going to San Francisco uh, about 10 years ago this month and uh, uh, the late uh, public defender Jeff Adachi had uh, a program on uh, on uh, bail reform, and that was the first time I had ever heard of bail reform uh, and really thought about any of these issues. And it's interesting. Within a ten-year period of time, we've gone from this idea that I don't think a lot of people really even thought about to um, to to something where you know California is really moving in the direction of bail reform. Humphrey was a, a big part of that after, uh, you know, the legislation uh, uh, failed to uh, stand. And I think uh, it's gonna be really interesting to see how the system uh, adjusts uh, to the changed environment. 
And my guess is that this isn't going to be the end of the story, that uh, we're, we're really just looking at kind of a first wave of this. Um, and we're seeing this all over the country. So it's mm -hmm. really interesting how quickly the issue of bail reform has caught on. And I think, you know, for a lot of people, it was just kind of common sense that, oh, yeah, I, I didn't really think about the fact that why does bail even make sense? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, and there's a whole industry that benefits <laughs> from this. Billion dollar uh, industry. Mm hmm. And, and really the cost and the, the financial burden falls not just on the individual who's convicted, you know, who's been charged with the crime, but uh, on their family and on their community who they often rely on to help pay. So it really is a broader issue of equity uh, and fairness. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, sharing uh, very interesting findings from the study. Are, are you guys working on a second wave on this? Yeah, we have a bunch of work in progress. We're doing some more work on electronic monitoring specifically. Um, we have a, a paper, kind of a longer paper coming out that looks at the Humphrey decision and tries to understand how being released uh, impacts outcomes. So in a more causal way. Um, and it just in general, a lot of pretrial work. So you should check out our website and uh, see what we're up to. What's the uh, web address? Uh, it's if you Google California Policy Lab, we'll pop right up. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time and talking with us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Joanna Laco from the California Policy Lab has been talking about uh, the Humphrey decision and bail reform in San Francisco and extending into California. You've been watching Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.